uh, we are going to be in John 17, starting out. And we'll read the first five verses. John 17, you can stand for the reading of God's word. These are the words of God. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me with, together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. In it, you reveal your eternal glories, your praiseworthiness, and your love for sinners. Help us now as we look at your eternal purposes of saving a people in Christ. Let me handle your word with care and precision as I try to proclaim with boldness that which you have revealed to us. Guard us from falsehood and let all that we learn guide our eyes upward to behold your glory. Cause our theology to spur us on to praise. We ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. About our God, the prophet Moses once declared, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Our Lord is not like that of the Mormons, who was a man one time and he became exalted into godhood. No, our God has eternally existed as God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Before all ages, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect and complete fellowship together. God was not lacking in any comfort, as all three persons of the Godhead expressed perfect love and affection one for another. For hundreds of years, Christians have been identified by their belief in the doctrine of the Trinity. It was fiercely contended for in the first few generations of the church. And in controversies about this very doctrine produced some of the most foundational of creeds and confessions that we have. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, all came from believers confessing and recognizing together the extreme importance of confessing a God who is three in one and one in three. But it seems like our zeal for this blessed truth has waned over time. Really, it seems like our zeal for most theology has waned over time in America. American evangelicals have, uh, as Douglas Wilson once said, all the theological rigidity of a bowl of pudding. With one mind and one voice, all the faithful for generations have confessed the full deity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But listen to how our current generation thinks about these issues. Every couple years, Ligonier Ministries uh, does a poll of American evangelicals. And last year, this statement appeared before thousands of Christians, evangelical Christians, on a poll sheet. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Agree or disagree? What percent of American evangelicals do you think affirmed this? A whopping 43% of American evangelicals denied the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't send a chill down your spine, I don't know what will. With such theological confusion about every basic doctrine of Christianity, it's no surprise that the Western church has been doctrinally stunted. It becomes extremely difficult to do what the author of Hebrews says and leave the elementary doctrines and press on into maturity, to mature in our faith, mature in our doctrine. He's not saying we throw away the gospel or leave it out of our minds. That would be blasphemy. What he's saying is that we need to lay a sure foundation of the gospel, the basic tenets of our faith, so we can build upon it. The gospel is the foundation upon which the rest of the theological house is built. I say all this because what we're talking about the next two weeks, I'm preaching next week as well, is high-order doctrine, that's for sure. It's difficult. 
It can be confusing, and I think it's absolutely crucial to understand for the building of our theological structures. Remembering at every point that we're standing on the gospel of Christ and are not only attempting to expound that gospel as we build, but again, build upon it, become mature. So here's the question we're addressing these next two Sundays. What kind of harmony exists between the eternal purposes of the Father, Son, and Spirit and the redemption of men? I'll say it again. What kind of harmony exists between the eternal purposes of the Father, Son, and Spirit and the redemption of men? So glorious and transcendent are these realities that without God stooping down to reveal these truths to us, we could never come to a knowledge of them. We would never know the workings of God in eternity if he didn't condescend and disclose these mysteries to us in time. And here in our text this morning, Christ's prayer peels back the curtain of eternity, and we have the immense privilege of beholding the eternal plans and purposes of the triune God to save a people in Christ Jesus. And that's what we're looking at these next two weeks, what theologians have called the Council of Peace. That is, the agreement made between the persons of the Trinity to save the people of God. This week, we'll look at specifically the Father's role in redemption. And the next weeks, we'll look at the perfect harmony of the work of the Son and Spirit and the plan of the Father. The Father's role in the Council of Peace is primarily in the predestination of the elect and sending of the Son and Spirit to save them. Look back at our text in verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. We see that before God had created the world, he gave a people to Christ Jesus with the purpose that Christ would give them eternal life. When the Bible speaks about election or predestination, this is what it's talking about. We shouldn't be shrinking from these words. They're biblical words. We shouldn't shrink from them or be ashamed of them because God's word is not shrinking from them or afraid of them. Before we were around to merit any favor in God's eyes, before we were around to exercise faith in the gospel, God determined that he would have mercy on a wretched sinner like you and me, that he would graciously give us to his son to be saved. Flip over to John 6 to see this a little more specifically. John chapter 6, starting in verse 35, John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Remember the context. Jesus said this. He had just fed the 5,000. Multitudes were now following him, but they weren't coming to him in faith. They were simply coming to him because they wanted more bread to eat. That's why Jesus says, you have seen me. You have seen the miracles that I can do, and yet, he says, they do not believe. It's important to note the context because the rest of the discourse in John 6 is Jesus explaining why the people in front of him don't believe. Why is it that two people can hear the gospel Two people who are otherwise exactly the same, and one comes to faith, and the other doesn't. Is it because one is more sensitive to the things of the Spirit? No, Paul says that the natural man is dead to the things of the Spirit of God. Is it because he's smarter? Were we smarter than the next guy? No, because Paul says that the world doesn't come to know God by its wisdom. So why is it that one believes and one doesn't? Christ informs us, going on in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, 
that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. At the very start, Christ begins to explain the unbelief of the people by saying it's those whom the Father has given to him who will have faith. The action of the Father in election, and as we'll see in a minute, in drawing is the primary reason someone comes to Christ. I didn't come to Christ because I was smarter than anyone else, believe me. I didn't come to Christ because I love my sin less than the next guy, believe you me. I came to Christ because the Father showed me mercy. I came to Christ because before the foundation of the world, I was entrusted to the care of a faithful Savior. Jesus continues to hammer this point home in verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Stop grumbling amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. If there was any vestige of hope left that coming to Christ was dependent upon me and my actions, me and my free will, Jesus destroys it here. He doesn't say that it's unlikely that someone will come to Christ apart from the Father's drawing. He doesn't say that it's hard. He literally says, no one is able. No one is able to come to him. In myself, I am hopeless. In myself, I will not seek God. I will not submit to God. I will not love God. But the Father has placed his redemptive love on a pitiful sinner like me by entrusting me to his dear Son and in time drawing me to himself. The Father is the source and wellspring of our salvation. If any man is in Christ, it's because the Father chose to show unimaginable mercy to him in election. But lest you think I'm reading between the lines a little too much here, turn with me to a text that is quite explicit about this. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Stop right there. When Paul says that God blessed us, to whom is he referring? Who's the us? If we back up to verse 1, we see that the us is Paul and the believers in Ephesus. So Paul is saying that as they as believers, and by extension we as believers, are blessed with every spiritual blessing He names one of those blessings in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Sounds like John 6, doesn't it? By predestinating us to become adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed upon us in the Beloved. Here we see the same truths revealed as elsewhere in Scripture, that it's the Father who chooses us for salvation. It's the Father who predestines us for spiritual adoption. All the emphasis is on God, and God alone is to receive praise for our coming to Christ. In fact, that's the ultimate reason, the text says, that the Father chose us. Look at it again, for it says, the praise of the glory of His grace. In our election, the Father's grace is held up for all to see. In our election, the mercies of the Father shine forth like rays from the sun. How could God, considering us in a state of utter depravity, choose to set his love upon us? It's a great mystery. But I can tell you, dear brothers, it's not because he saw something in you that was better than the next guy. It's not because you were more lovely than the next guy. Do we see how humbling this doctrine should be? In light of our utter unworthiness, in light of the just penalty of wrath that should have overcome us, do we see how marvelous it is that God, in his own free mercy, chose us for salvation? And it's not that he simply chose to forgive us of our sins, although he has. It's not just that he chose to take his wrath off of us. No, he chose, the text says, to become adopted as sons. 
Not only did the Father predestine us to be freed from the just consequences of our sin, he predestined us to enter into covenant with him, a covenant in which we can now call him Father. What a glorious doctrine. But in case we haven't established it well enough, let's turn to another text, and perhaps the most definitive. Turn with me to the 8th chapter of Romans. We're going to start in verse 28 and read through the rest of the chapter. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ? Jesus, he, he died. Yes, rather, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we see in verses 29 and 30 specifically is what's called the golden chain of redemption. Note how each of these actions of God are inextricably tied up together like links in a chain. If one is foreknown by God, he will certainly be predestined. If he is predestined by God, he will certainly be called. If he is called by God, he will certainly be justified. And if he is justified by God, he will certainly be glorified. One of the links in this golden chain is that of predestination. This is the same word we saw in Ephesians chapter 1. And again, it means to choose the destination beforehand, literally. The destination God chose, according to our text, is our conformity to Christ Jesus. But before we get to the word predestined, we see the word foreknew. And at this one word, this one word is usually used as the trump card to overturn everything I've said thus far. Most who disagree on this doctrine will point out the word foreknew and say, clearly, Christ, uh, clearly then, God doesn't choose us without consideration of our free wills, let's say, but he, in his foreknowledge, saw who would come to Christ. Then he predestined those who he already foresaw would come to Christ in faith. Do we understand the objection? They're contending that election and predestination doesn't depend solely on the free choice of the Father, but on something he foresaw in us, faith. But I think this is a sore misreading of the text. I hope these two responses will be sufficient. First, the text, look back at it in verse 29. It says nothing about him foreknowing that we will have faith. The idea is completely absent from the passage in front of us. If someone wanted to say that God predestined because he foresaw that we would have faith, they'd need to go to another passage. In fact, it doesn't say that which he foreknew. It doesn't say that he foreknew. It says whom, those whom he foreknew. He foreknew us, not our actions, It's not saying that he foreknew an action that we would do, like have faith. It's saying he foreknew us personally. The word know in Scripture is often used to talk about knowing someone intimately. Genesis says that Adam knew his wife, 
and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. God says to his covenant people Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Did God not know about the other nations? Of course he did. What's he talking about? He's saying that it's only with Israel that he chose to enter into a personal covenant relationship. Peter says that Christ himself was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Peter isn't saying that the Father foreknew what Christ would do. Of course he did. But that God foreknew Christ in a personal and intimate way. And in the same way, you, dear brother, have been known by Christ for all eternity. Long before you were born, he knew you and chose to enter into covenant with you. Oh, the unimaginable love of the Father. When we didn't see it, when we didn't deserve it, when we had done nothing to merit it, the Father placed his electing love upon us. Think on this love. Let it drive you to repentance. When you sin, dear brothers, think about who you're sinning against, the one who from all eternity knew you and loved you in spite of your sins. That's the all-gracious God who we worship. But the other reason Paul isn't talking about the Father foreseeing that we would have faith is even more convincing, I'd say. We know that it's not what Paul's getting at because we just heard Christ in John 6 say what? No man is able to come to Christ. We know that God doesn't look down the corridors of time and see us having faith because apart from the sovereign drawing of the Father, he wouldn't see me having faith. He would see me as a hostile rebel against his throne. Until God chooses to change my heart, I would have never been anything but a poor, pitiable, spiritually dead sinner. He would see me not as someone who has made a choice to believe the gospel. No, he would have seen me as a valley of dry bones. It's not until God himself takes out my heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh that I come to him in repentance and faith. If he foresaw me apart from his special redemptive drawing, he would simply see a spiritually dead sinner hostile to the things of God. For more on that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Pastor Nick's sermon series on free will that he gave in January of 21. But who are these people who are predestined by the Father? We read on in verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here he defines the us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Paul's talking about a group of people called the elect of God. The word elect denotes a people who have been chosen, who have been elected. Paul is speaking in terms of salvation and redemption here in chapter 8. And as we transition into Romans chapter 9, he's talking about the same thing. It's one flow of thought connecting the chapters. We keep reading chapter 9, verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul looks at the present state of his Jewish brothers and sees them denying the Messiah they've been waiting on for thousands of years. Anticipation had been building and building and building, but when the relief had finally come, they spurned him. Not only did they spurn him, they crucified him. Instead of embracing their Savior in faith, they put him to an open shame. And this grieves Paul. Although he's just spelled out God's sovereignty and election and salvation, that doesn't stop him from mourning over those who are so hearted that they refuse to submit to Christ in repentance. So let's summarize the flow of Paul's thoughts so far. 
At the end of chapter 8, Paul exults in the glorious salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. We are heirs with Christ of an eternal and unmerited reward. But as he exults, something pricks his mind. As he's finding joy in his salvation, as those who he had grown up knowing, his Jewish brothers are rejecting salvation. How can this be, Paul asks. How could it be that my brothers in the flesh, those who I have seen, go to synagogue every day and praise Yahweh, say their prayers, they've memorized the scriptures, they sing the psalms. How can it be that they're all perishing? And in his despair, true despair, Paul makes this definitive statement in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though God has become untrustworthy or has become a liar. Verses 6 and 7 provide the key to understanding the entire text. Given that God has chosen people, the Jews, they were rejecting their Messiah because those who God had given covenants and glory and promises were rejecting the one to whom the covenants and promises were all about. It provokes Paul to ask this or to make this statement. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel, he says, who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they're Abraham's seed. But through Isaac shall your seed be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now that's a confusing statement. What's Paul mean here? Really, if we've been reading Romans carefully, we should know who Paul's talking about when he says that there is an Israel that isn't descended from physical Israel. Flip back over to chapter 2 of Romans. And in chapter 2 of Romans, in verse 28, we read this. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. A true Jew, a true Israelite, is one who is circumcised in the heart. That is, a true Jew is one who has been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Paul expounds on this theme a little more in chapter 4 when he tells us that we all become children of Abraham. How? By faith. We become united to Israel. We become part of Israel by faith. Looking at everyone here, I would guess that not many of us are physically descended from Abraham. But we're counted as children of the promise. We're counted as children of Abraham because we have the same faith as Abraham. So Paul's statement in verse 6 that not all Israel is descended from Israel is pointing out that even in the Old Testament, God's promises of salvation and blessing were really for those who had faith. We are the true Israel because we are united to Christ, the true Israel, Christ, the true Israel by faith. Just because Paul's kinsmen were rejecting Jesus didn't mean that God's salvific promises had failed. The Jews in the first century were placing confidence in their flesh. They thought that because they were descended from physical Abraham, that they were right in standing with God. For some of them, as we see elsewhere in Romans, they also thought that their keeping the law was what made them righteous. But Paul refutes all of that in what follows. Against the idea that our salvation is based on our genetics, Paul argues in the rest of the chapter that one becomes a child of promise by the sovereign election of the Father. In verses 9 through 13, Paul gives us an example of God's unconditional choice in the Old Testament. In verse 9, For this is the word of the promise. At that time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man Isaac... For though the twins were not yet born, 
and had not done anything, either good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Think back to the Old Testament for a moment. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, conceived twins. Paul gives us the best possible examples to see God's electing choice in action. We have two individuals who are ostensibly the same, conceived by the same parents. Both came into existence at the same time, and yet God makes a discriminating choice. When Paul stresses that this choice is before their birth, before they had done anything, either good or evil, he's trying to communicate that God's choice to bless Jacob wasn't based on anything Jacob did or believed. God simply had freedom. Not only did he have a free choice, but his choice seems to be the unnatural choice. Given the natural customs of the day, it's the older brother, Esau, who should have gained the promise and inheritance. But God is under no compulsion. He chooses based on his own sovereign pleasure and nothing else. Now, this is a hard teaching. I understand that. I'd be lying if I told you that when I was first introduced to this, I didn't think, no, it can't be. God would, wouldn't possibly do something like that. But I have to submit to what I think this text seems to be saying. And in the same way that I was rubbed the wrong way by this doctrine and offered an objection, Paul anticipates an objection to his teaching that he assumes someone will bring up in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Basically, the objector is asking, if God chose Jacob over Esau before they had done anything to merit God's favor or to do anything, good or bad, how is that not unrighteous? How could we say that God is righteous, that he is just, if he chooses some and not others? Well, Paul answers this up front in verse 14. May it never be. God is going to go on and explain, Paul rather, is going to go on and explain why there's no unrighteousness in God's election. But at the outset, Paul says, may it never be. Who are we to sit as moral judge over the thrice holy God? Whatever conclusion we come to, God is just. We dare not charge him with any evil, But I want to point out, if you've disagreed with my interpretation thus far, ask yourself, what has Paul taught in this passage that would have provoked someone to bring up this objection? To be honest, most of the time when I discuss this issue and someone disagrees, the immediate objection that they give is that if God chooses who is saved without any consideration of anything the individual has done, then God seems to be unjust. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. So while we say with Paul, may it never be, The objection helps us to figure out the correct interpretation. If we interpret Paul properly, we would expect people to respond in the same way that the rejecter responds in our passage. But Paul gives us more. He doesn't simply deny that God is unrighteous. He argues his point in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, in order to demonstrate my power in you, and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. It's difficult to see upon first glance how this proves Paul's point. But I think the answer lies in the objection itself. The imagery, the imaginary rather, objector is arguing that God is acting unrighteously for choosing Jacob over Esau irrespective of anything they had done. What the objector objector does not realize is that he's working with a wrong definition of the word righteous. 
If we truly want to understand God's righteousness, we have to understand it as being something intrinsic to God. God is in and of himself righteous. No matter what he does or how we perceive him to be acting, he is the standard of righteousness. We don't get to stand as judge over our creator and declare him to be righteous or unrighteous by our own autonomous standards. We stand as subjects of the king who bow before him in reverence. So while it may seem like Paul isn't directly answering the objection, he really is. The answer is that, far from being unrighteous, God acted like God. A God who is completely self-sufficient, free, and righteous. By raising up Pharaoh to proclaim the name of God in the earth, God proclaimed righteousness. The more God's name is upheld and proclaimed, the more righteousness is proclaimed. And God truly acted here as a free and holy God. But notice how important verse 16 is for our considerations. What's it based on? Is God's choice based on our own desires? Is it based on anything we've done or could do? No, it's based entirely on what? The mercying God. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. God and God alone has ensured our salvation. Listen to the amount of pure freedom God has in this choice. Let's read again verse 15. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Like I said, I understand, though this is a hard teaching. In fact, some may even be asking the very next objection that Paul raises. If salvation really does rest solely in the decision of God, then how could he possibly still send people to hell? If God is the one who decides who will receive salvation and who won't, how can he still judge us? As Paul puts it in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? I'll be honest, I've asked that. I've asked that question before. But as we'll see, Paul would have me repent for asking such a thing. Again, we don't get to set ourselves up as judge who get to drag God into our courtroom before our bar of justice. No, it's we who are judged by the word of God. He is the creator, the standard of right and wrong, the very essence of goodness itself. Who are we to say he is acting unrighteously? Paul answers it as succinctly as anyone could have in verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Really, if you look at the word order of the Greek, it starts with the words, O man. Paul reminds us at the outset of our humanity. We're but mere creatures made by the hand of an all-righteous God. Who do we think we are to be asking such questions? He goes on. Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. The imagery is of God as a cosmic potter. And we, all fallen humanity, are a lump of clay on his wheel. And in some of the most difficult imagery in all of Scripture, we see God taking some of that clay and making it into a vessel of mercy and glory. Clearly, salvation and some clay into a vessel of wrath, which is, as it says, prepared for destruction. God is the sovereign potter, and we are the clay in his hands. Remember the objection Paul is considering here. How can God still find fault in us if we can't resist his sovereign will? 
Paul doesn't tease out the answer fully. He simply tells us two truths. You are a mere creature, and you don't have the right to question God's character. That's his first answer. And two, God really does make some people for glory, yes, and some for destruction. And the fact that some are judged implies, he says, that they are still responsible, does it not? Paul holds forth the tension. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. While I don't understand this completely, I do know this. Every sin I've ever committed, I committed because I wanted to. God wasn't standing behind me, forcing me to be prideful or to gossip or to sin in any way. Believe me, no one needs to force me to sin. It burdens me as it should because it's my fault. I act in accordance with my desires. And according to Paul, that is perfectly consistent with God's sovereignty. One of the clearest texts speaking to this is Acts chapter 4. Let's go there. Acts chapter 4. We'll start in verse 24. Here we read a prayer of the early church. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, four groups of people here, to do what? Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Here we read that four groups of people, again, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews, conspired to kill the very Son of God, all of them completely responsible, all of them having different motives, and nevertheless, they're all fulfilling the predestined plan and will of God. God so orchestrated the event in his sovereignty that thousands of years before Christ was ever incarnated, the prophets foretold this as a sure event. There was no possibility of this not happening, and yet we learn that God had predestined it from long ago. All four groups of men did exactly what they pleased to do. Each of them are fully responsible for their actions, and God was fully sovereign in bringing about his will exactly as it was prophesied. God sovereign, man responsible, no tension. Maybe in our minds, but in the word of God, there is no tension. We dare never to accuse God of sin or unrighteousness, but we dare not say that any event in this world has ever thwarted his purpose and plan. This is a God who is worthy of worship. Now, that's a lot of doctrine. And some of you may be wondering, was it really important to talk about this? Isn't this just divisive? Well, first, I trust that this body is mature enough in the Lord to handle this with care, that we can all disagree with care. Disagreement is natural in any congregation, but I trust we'll all disagree with love and patience. And I trust we'll do so by going to the text of Scripture. I'm convinced that these things are in the text. I haven't been quoting a bunch of theologians. I haven't mentioned John Calvin's name. I hope I've shown that I think the text of Scripture supports my conclusions. But I must say, I think it's vital that we talk about these things. Far from being a side issue or unimportant, the doctrine of predestination should be a comfort and encourage every Christian heart. Let's also be reminded that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we would have been read in the corporate gathering, by the way, 
Paul sent the letter to the Ephesians, and they would have read this in their church service. He didn't get but four verses into his epistle before he proclaimed the unimaginable blessings of election. Why was it a treasure? Why should we be talking about this? I'll give two primary reasons. First, it takes every ounce of focus away from us and our salvation and ensures that all credit, all glory, all praise is given to God alone. Turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul alludes to this line of thought. First Corinthians 1, we'll start in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, notice that again, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that, conclusion, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing are you in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As one preacher has become famous for saying, and as David quoted this morning, you contribute nothing to your salvation, except the sin that made it necessary. The doctrine of predestination reminds us of that fact. If God really has set his redemptive love upon me before I was born, before I had faith, before I had done anything, either good or bad, then clearly I had nothing to contribute to my salvation. God took this poor, spiritually lifeless sinner and by his own free grace brought me to life in Christ. An analogy has been drawn between the spiritually dead sinner and Lazarus in the Gospels. As we were all once spiritually dead, unable to understand the things of God or do anything pleasing to him analogously, Lazarus was physically dead, unable to do anything to gain life again. He was so long dead that they said his grave began to stink, and in an act of pure, redemptive love, Christ called out, Lazarus, come forth. So too are we, so dead in sin that apart from the predestination of the Father, and as we'll talk about next week, the work of the Son and Spirit, we would be pitifully dead in our sins. So God should get glory, should he not? You've come to an undeserved inheritance which was prepared for you from the beginning of time. As Paul said to Timothy, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. 
and some translations, before the ages began. This should drive our eyes upward. It should drive us to praise as we behold the one whose grace and love for us predates time itself. Secondly, it properly orients our proclamation of the gospel. We can be assured that our proclamation doesn't have to be with lofty words or crafty speech. We just need to ensure that our proclamation is true and faithful. We could never convince someone to be a Christian. Neither could we debate someone into the faith. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be persuasive. I'm not saying we shouldn't be reasonable and patient with people. What I'm saying is that every Christian, from recent converts to those who are close to seeing the Lord in glory, can confidently proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone, knowing that what I say is not going to change anyone's mind. But if I'm preaching Christ, God might call his people to faith through my message. Turn to Acts, the 13th chapter. Acts, the 13th chapter. Acts 13, we'll start reading in verse 44. We have displayed for us this very principle. Acts 13, starting in verse 44. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, listen to this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Paul and Barnabas could proclaim the message faithfully, even when they knew in this circumstance it would anger the Jews because they knew that it's the Lord who sovereignly saves sinners through their proclamation. Some claim that if you believe in this doctrine, unconditional election, that it leads to a stunted evangelism. But that should be the exact opposite of the case. Go out and herald the gospel, dear brothers, because God will use your proclamation to draw his people to himself. And let it be a cause for repenting for those who hold these truths and who let their evangelism grow cold. I'm including myself here. Perhaps we have a good bit of repenting to do before we take the supper. But let this be an encouragement for change. God is sovereign. And I can say that on the authority of his word, he wants to bring those who are appointed to eternal life to himself through our evangelism. The fields are white for harvest, are they not? And can I say this? Nothing I've said contradicts the free offer of the gospel. We can proclaim John 3.16. We can. Whoever comes to Christ will find him to be a perfect savior. Preach the gospel indiscriminately and let God give the increase as the worship team makes their way up here. I want to encourage all of you, think on these things. Agree or disagree with my conclusions. Let the topic drive you back to the word and study. Engage with the body over this. Be charitable. Be loving. Let iron sharpen iron. And next week, we'll try to show how the work of the Son and Spirit perfectly accord with the plan and predestination of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for our salvation. We give all glory and praise to you for it. Help us to be driven further and deeper into your word to mine the depths of divine truth and help us bow in humble submission to whatever we find. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, and amen.